What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. And today we are joined by a very special guest, probably our most unique special guest that most we've had. Most interesting. Definitely most interesting. Something I've been looking forward to for all months since we set this up. We have with us Dr. Emmanuel Yokoeta uh, from Baylor University. Um, he is a physician and he's also the uh, Deputy Chief Scientist at Translational Research Institute for Space Health and an Assistant Professor of Emergency and Space Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Okueta, how's it going? Good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to uh, geek out a little bit uh, about space medicine and um, uh, thank you for, for the invitation. No, absolutely. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to, to do this and uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking with you. So as far as that term, space medicine, um, how going from medical school, how did you decide on that? And, and even then before that, can you give us like kind of a definition? Like, what does that mean? Because I feel like a lot of people listening maybe not even familiar with that topic. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this is this is a very, very unique field on, on, on in the medical arena. Um, usually, you know, when you go to medical school, you are you first learn how the, the, the human body works uh, physiologically normal, and then you learn about diseases and pathologies. And uh, when you are in your medical practice, most of the time uh, you get sick patients, and then you try to, to fix them and to bring them back to, to normal physiology. Now, the field of space medicine is uh, the exact opposite. Um, we only see um, very, very healthy human beings actually I would tell you that probably the astronauts are some of the healthiest human beings mm. on Earth. There's a very, very thorough process of selection. And then um, as they get training and they get selected for a mission and then they get assigned to a mission, there's a lot of medical screening and medical tests that they have to pass before they fly into space. Uh, so the field of space medicine is how a normal and very, very healthy human being exposed to a non-terrestrial environment, how can you keep them healthy? Right. So that is, that is really a paradigm shift from what, what uh, you know, it's, it's normally thought about, about medicine. That's interesting. And, and how, have you always been interested in, you know, this type of field or did this, how did you end up going after medical school? Did you do a residency in space medicine? How did you come about starting in this field? Yeah, so I, um, since I was a kid, uh, I, I wanted to be a pilot, and an airplane pilot. My my dad uh, is an uh, aerospace engineer, and he worked all his life uh, doing uh, maintenance for for airplanes. So since I was a kid, I have always been involved in, uh, uh, not involved, but you know, around uh, the, um, the aviation and aerospace communities. So um, yeah, I wanted to be a pilot. Then um, I was in high school. Nine eleven happened, and. Uh, I, I decided to go to a different field. Um, luckily, it was it was medicine. Um, before going uh, into space medicine, I wanted to do emergency medicine. I, I actually practiced emergency medicine for a couple of years. Okay. Um, and then I went to do a master's in in aerospace medicine at uh, Wright State University in, in Ohio. And um, after that, I um, was lucky enough to participate at. Uh, 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 
a simulated mission at NASA. It's called the Human Exploration Research Analog, uh, where I volunteered to spend 30 days with other three people inside of a tin can with no windows, <laughs> uh, simulated a, a mission to Mars so that um, uh, scientists can understand how uh, being isolated and confined, and I think this is something that <laughs> is pretty common to all of us now with COVID, yes. um, how, how we can... Um, understand the challenges that the astronauts will go through on a mission like this and uh, how we can uh, develop countermeasures and, and treatments for this. And then after that, I, um, I got the job that I, that I currently have. And, uh, you know, sometimes in the morning, I still have to pinch myself to, <laughs> to make sure that I'm not dreaming and that I, I, I have this job, uh, which I get to, uh, to design the needs and to envision the needs, uh, the medical needs for, for a mission to Mars that, that we're still developing. So uh, I, I think my life, everything came uh, together, uh, you know, like a puzzle. I'm also a pilot. Um, I, I mean, I have, I'm a private pilot and I play Cessna sometimes. But uh, yeah, everything everything came uh, together like, like a puzzle. And uh, um, yeah, so that's basically uh, a little bit summary of my life. <laughs> that's that's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, that's especially to start like having that interest from an early age and go all the way through. How like how big of an area of study is space medicine? I know, um, you know, Baylor has a department of space medicine. I think Vanderbilt does. Is it is there a lot of universities that have this kind of in their medical schools? It's actually pretty, pretty small. Um, first, let me tell you the countries that uh, really have a space medical program. And it's really I could tell you the U.S. Is, is, of course, the largest. And in the U.S., you need to live in Houston to be really in the in the human space flight um, area. Um, of course, the Russians have a very robust uh, space medicine program as well. Um, the Europeans, not a single country, but rather the, the entire European Union, uh, they have also a program. Hmm. Uh, Canada has a small program. And now recently, uh, in the last couple of years, uh, China has also um, a space mission program. So it's, it's pretty small. And then uh, going back to your original question, inside of the U.S., there's only a handful of of universities that have uh, programs really devoted to, to space medicine. In, in, in the case where I work uh, in Baylor College of Medicine, this is really the only academic center in the U.S. that has uh, a devoted uh, program to space medicine. Um, from the residency side of things, people that want to do operational space medicine, they want to be flight surgeons and, and physically take care of astronauts. Uh, there's one program uh, very close to us in Houston, uh, which is the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. Uh, also, the Mayo Clinic, they have they have a program, and uh, besides that, is the military. So it's uh, it's 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 still a very small area. Gotcha. So as far as you know, taking care of these astronauts, I, I think you know. Obviously, I've always thought when I think of a physician interacting with with an astronaut, I expect, you know, kind of what you were saying initially, the screening process, making sure you have the most healthy candidates to kind of go up in space. One thing I don't, like when I first started thinking about this, it was, I realized like we don't ever take into account all the different things that could go wrong with your health in one in space where there's no, no, no uh, 911 to call an ambulance. And, and then also too, I mean, the whole effect of gravity on a person's physiology. Uh, I don't think a lot of people take that into account. Um, so what are some of the, the main things that you've kind of focused on? Um, some of the main topics like that you would kind of think about when you're thinking space medicine. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, before we go into that, I, I am not an operational flight surgeon. I am uh, more on the, on the um, science management side of, of things. So I, I get to develop the, um, 
I get to design what it's needed in the future. We um, we solicit for these technologies and this type of research where I work at the Translational uh, Research Institute for Space Health. Uh, we are uh, a partner to the NASA Human Research Program, and we have been tasked to find really novel and disruptive technologies that, that could solve um, some of these medical issues that, that I will start uh, discussing in a few seconds uh, on a mission specifically to Mars. So we are really Mars focused. And uh, I mean, this this mission is not going to happen until the 2030s, 2040s timeframe. Um, so that's basically what I do. Now, going back to your question, we have been on low Earth orbit for the last 20 plus years in, in the space station. Uh, you know, it's it's still quite often people think that that after the shuttle, uh, there has no been there, there hasn't been any any astronauts in space. But um, yeah, we have had a human presence on low Earth orbit for the last uh, 20 plus years. And uh, during that time, we have developed countless technologies, countless countermeasures, and we have really um, built a body of knowledge that uh, allows us to, to, to be there very, very safe. Uh, on the last 20 plus years, there, has, there hasn't been a single incident that has required an astronaut to come back to Earth. Um, of course, we cannot call 911, like you're saying, but uh, still on low Earth orbit, uh, there's pretty much real time, very, very seconds of delay communications back to, to Earth. So if there's a medical issue, uh, you know, the astronauts can just call Houston. Um, you know, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> and, uh, and and there's a, a flight surgeon there. And, and behind the flight surgeon, there's a, a backup flight surgeon in the backup room. And then behind the backup flight surgeon, there's really a list of, of who to call if there's a specific medical uh, issue that you have. Gotcha. Uh, Given that, and also given the, the, the selection that I was telling you, and uh, uh, really ensuring that when you send somebody to space, he or she is as healthy as you can send them, uh, has allowed us really not to have any any incidents or really you know having to send somebody back to Earth. Now, given that, I don't want to minimize the, the, the really massive uh, challenges that we have to endure to send somebody to space. And... Uh, like I was telling you, this is low Earth orbit, and it's 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 a massive challenge. But when you compare this to uh, to the Moon, where we have been in the last decades, in the 60s, 70s, and then in the 2024 timeframe, where we're planning to go back with with Artemis, and then from that uh, to Mars in the 2030s, 2040s timeframe, it's that that is really really a, a huge huge challenge. Now, uh, regardless of of the distance and um, the type of mission, there are physiologic changes and environmental uh, challenges that the astronauts have to, to, to endure and withstand that are pretty much the same regardless of the mission. Uh, of course, the first one that, that, that probably will come to everybody's mind is the lack of gravity, right? Mm -hmm. um, our human bodies have been designed to, to, to live in a one gravity environment. We know that about 80% of the, of the um, uh, Venus um, flow is in the legs uh, and this is mainly driven uh, on a one gravity environment but you know when, when when astronauts go to space there's no gravity fields anymore so most of these fluids then shift to the head so there's a cephalad fluid shift and then the body starts sensing that there's a fluid overload right because uh, we have a lot of receptors in the body that 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 are able to to, to sense and measure pressures and volumes so you start having an increase um, during output but it's not really that you are 
having a volume overload, it's just a redistribution of these fluids. Mm. So that's that's the first one. Uh, this, of course, has a lot of alterations, not only physically on the way that you see the astronaut. There's a lot of pictures that you can see with, with astronauts uh, before and, and during flight. And you can see that that the faces are really uh, like flushed. The, the, the faces look like like they have a lot of edema. Right. It's not really edema. It's just a redistribution of, 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 the, of the same fluids that, that we have here on Earth. Mm. Um, and that point comes from, moves again from the legs to the, um, to the uh, cephalic portion of, of the body. Uh, so the, the the legs start looking a little bit thin. So you know within the the space biomedical research community, they call this the chicken leg puffy face syndrome, because <laughs> the legs uh, start looking a little bit thin, and then uh, the face starts looking uh, more like flush. So they, they they like to call it chicken leg puffy face syndrome. Um, of course, there's a myriad of of physiologic and 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 hormonal changes that happen behind the scenes that uh, you know, have a lot of alterations to this. Uh, the second one is, uh, is also based on the lack of gravity and is that the muscles and the bones in a one gravity environment are meant to keep the bone and the muscle mass. Mm -hmm. But then when you go to space again, you remove this gravity field and then what happens to the muscles and the bones? So we learned from the first missions from Gemini and Mercury that if you don't have a very robust exercise device, uh, you will start losing um, a, a very, very important mass of, of muscle and, and bone. So um, uh, during the shuttle and after the shuttle, one, once we start uh, getting the space station, there's a, a, a very, very good exercise devices there. Um, specifically, we have the advanced resistive exercise device, the ARED, uh, that provides a resistive uh, exercise. And as a matter of fact, astronauts have to do two hours of exercise six days a week. Hmm. keep the the bone and muscle from from losing mass uh, still there's a little bit of muscle and bone that gets lost and uh, when you do some um, um, when you look at how the trabecula of the bone looks before and after flight not necessarily in astronauts but on on, on rodents the trabecula doesn't look the same there are changes in the trabecula so you can get a DEXA scan you can see that the mass is pretty much the same, or do you only lose a little bit of mass? But then when you look at the micro uh, structures of the trabecula, you see some changes. And we don't know what are the long effects of this, like if this will increase the likelihood of fracture or, or what happens with this. And uh, so, the, I mean, these are only a very of the few changes. I mean, we can be talking here for hours about this, but uh, I'm, I'm sure you have other questions. Well, speaking of the gravity stuff, so... Um, exercise is one thing. I also saw them trying to, you know, make an artificial gravity environment somehow. Is, th is that something that could be possible on a long trip to Mars? Yeah, that's definitely been looked into. Um, <clears throat> one of the challenges with um, having artificial gravity, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that most of us have seen, and on, on your audience, you guys have seen the, the Space Odyssey movie, right? Where you see these uh, huge... Um, spacecraft just spinning right. to, to, to give it gravity. And um, I mean, it, it, it would be really cost prohibitive to, mm -hmm. to design a vehicle with, with such a long arm that could provide enough gravity for you to, to be able to withstand or really provide a countermeasure to, to these issues related directly to the lack of gravity. So 
I personally don't think, and this is only my personal thought, I personally don't think that we will see a vehicle like the one that we, we've seen in, in Space Odyssey that um, is going to be like a massive artificial gravity, um, sort of like a huge centrifuge. Now, that being said, there's uh, research being done on how a small, a short arm centrifuge that you could potentially have inside of a spacecraft could potentially give you um, let, let's call it a treatment for these uh, fluid shifts. Now, again, this is also a challenge because, um, again, ISS, the, spa the space station is, is is a really, really big spacecraft. Uh, if you put it on top of a, a football field, it will fit inside a football field. So mm. it's as big as a football field. Um, but when we go to Mars, uh, it's going to be a very, very small spacecraft. Uh, it's probably going to have no windows. Mm. Um, and you're gonna be stuck there for three years. So you really need to wow. make sure that the things that you bring there are with absolutely unique. So um, there's still a lot of debate between um, artificial gravity and short-term centrifuge. And I don't think that we still have enough evidence to 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 really say that okay, we need this device uh, for for gravity. But definitely, there's a lot of people doing research in this area. So. As far as like you know movies and things like that, the, and we were talking about this before we started recording. The, there's a Netflix Netflix show that has been um, you know number one in the U.S. for a while, and a lot of people have seen it um, called Away, and where they yes. they go to Mars and um, and everything. And there was an episode where one of the astronauts develops like mononucleosis because of uh, reactivation of Epstein Barr virus. Mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. is that Hollywood magic or is that a real concern? So, uh, I, I mean, a reactivation, we haven't seen clinical reactivations of viruses in spaceflight. And by that, I mean that you haven't seen, we haven't seen any cases where astronauts start developing symptoms and uh, both signs and symptoms of a clinical, cl clinical reactivation. That being said, there's a lot of research being done in this area. And um, there's a lot of viruses that have been looked into this. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna just mention a handful of them, uh, like the Epstein-Barr virus, the EBV. Uh, we have looked at varicella zoster, the VCV, uh, herpes, herpes, herpes simplex virus uh, one, HSV one, and uh, the CMV as well, the, the cytomegalovirus. So um, there has been a lot of research in this really since the beginning of spaceflight. Um, and I can mention back from, from, from the shuttle results, uh, these missions used to last uh, 10 to 16 days. Uh, now on the space station, we have missions, traditionally they last six to eight months. Uh, there have been a, a few cases, probably you have heard about the, the twin study that lasted for, for a year. So we have, we have a lot of, 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 of research on these areas. And uh, there's uh, scientists that are looking at, at viral reactivation, um, viral shedding, and what are the pathophysiologic mechanisms that allow these viruses that on a one gravity environment or a terrestrial environment are completely under control from the immune system? So what happens to the immune system on spaceflight so that these viruses start you know, losing the control from the immune system? So um, there has been research in these areas, uh, again, from, from the shuttle all the way to, to today. So I mean, we know that the maintenance of of the viral um, the viral shedding and, and and really the latency of the viruses requires a lot of of um, work between the immune system 
uh, the cytotoxic T cells and, and, and other components of, of the immune system. We're talking about cytokines, um, you know, pro and anti-inflammatory uh, states, um, interleukins, and, and, and I mean, it's, it's a myriad of, of, of uh, components that we could spend probably a week talking about this. But going back to your question, yes, we have seen uh, viral shedding, um, a little bit of viral reactivation, uh, the reactivation and, and shedding of, of viruses, and I was mentioning three of those, have seen astronauts during a space shuttle, uh, the, the the Russian missions, the Soyuz missions, and, and missions to the space station. Now, um, what makes us think that this is not only related to being in space is that we have seen this in in um, what we call analog populations. Uh, that means that populations on Earth where you have similar people in similar environments and what i mean by this is people going to antarctica for example that are on on a very isolated part of the earth uh, so we have seen in antarctica um, in antarctic populations also this type of viral reactivation now most of these samples are taken from saliva and and urine and of course they're all measured after after the mission um, and uh, yes, yeah, so we have seen we have seen um, um, viral shedding of of of, of these viruses. Um, I'm just going to give you a few examples: the Epstein-Barr uh, virus, the EBV. We know that it causes the infectious uh, mononucleosis. Uh, some of the studies have have found a tenfold increase in viral load during uh, the flight phases. Um, another example: the varicella virus. There have seen also uh, uh, an increase on 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 a reactivation of these. Uh, now that being said, and and just just to wrap up this question, yes, there's uh, there's um, um, an increase in the in the shedding of of, of the viruses. Uh, at the same time, people trying to explain why this happens, they're looking at the different interleukins, and uh, we can see that um, there is um, a connection between the astronauts who shed the viruses and and those who have a significantly elevated levels of of, of cytokines. Um, Two of the of, of the most important ones are TH2 and, and IL4, and we know that those are uh, some of the the ones that drive the increase of, of inflammation. And what that means is that monocytes, granulocytes, and lymph lymphocytes get decreased because there's a, there's an increase of inflammation. So um, um, th this is basically what happens. Um, um, we, so going back to your question, this this um, uh, documentary, this this series that you mentioned, they go to Mars, right? So um, all of these measurements that we that we have are robust to the extent of the capabilities that we have, based on how long these missions last. And and again, this is based on six to eight uh, month missions, and it it's difficult to extrapolate these results to a mission that will last three years, right? So uh, based on the evidence that we have, it is possible, but we, we haven't had any, any clinically relevant cases of viral reactivation or viral um, shedding. Gotcha. That's extremely interesting, and I'm sure very timely with uh, you know, recent launches happening in the midst of, of a pandemic. But um, so three years, that's a really long time. And I, I, su <laughs> I suppose uh, a little bit different than the ISS missions, which are in lower Earth orbit, and they're able to get um, you know, resupplies multiple times per year. 
Um, so e- even putting aside pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic changes that might happen um, in space for the moment, I'm, I just think about, you know, astronauts have to take medication too, and a lot of um, expiration dates, once it's manufactured, aren't even good for three years, many times half yes. that. Um, so have they looked into ways to possibly um, extend uh, the viability of drugs, whether it be Tylenol or amoxicillin or whatever they need up there, <laughs> um, or even producing it on the mission? Like with, I saw something about a 3D printer, which would just be incredible. But um, like, is that something that, that you look at as well? Absolutely. I'm very happy you asked that question, and, and you're absolutely right. Um, again, where we are now in the space station, there's uh, resupply vehicles going there like every two to three months. So, you know, astronauts get uh, fresh, uh, fresh clothes, fresh food, uh, even, you know, if they want um, a, a thing of, of Tabasco sauce they want for their um their food, you know, they can send it there. I mean, we, we, you know, we, we have a lot of, of capabilities now. And, and of course, those translate to, to the fact that um, the um, medications that exist in the space station, even though they, they expire, we are constantly replenishing them so that there's a, there's a fresh and a constant um, pharmacy in the space station if, if anything happens. Now that being said, uh, even even on the space station, the the shelf life of of most medications is is shorter than than what we find here on Earth. Why is that? Well, uh, you can you know one one of the 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 most challenging things in spaceflight is how cost prohibitive it is to launch something to space, and this applies both to the, to, to low Earth orbit, to the Moon, to Mars, or you know whatever we go in in, in the next uh, hundred to a thousand years. So even sending some, something to space station is very expensive. So you need to make sure that everything that you send is as light as possible. So in this same um, area, most of the medications, you cannot just go to any pharmacy, buy the medication and send them to space. So most of these medications need to be repackaged. And as we very well know, if you take a medication, you open the original uh, packaging, you will start the oxidation process, right? Because most of most of the medications that are, you know, packed on a on a uh, any type of packaging, most of these have um, some some gases there that um, stop as much as possible the oxidation process. But uh, when we send these medications to space, they need to be repackaged, so uh, the oxidation process is already started. That being said, you already sent to space; they have to go through the 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 all the issues of, of, of launching them on a, on, a, on a rocket ship. There's a lot of vibration. When you get into, into the space station, the humidity is, is very low. It's not what we experience here. I mean, I, I live in Houston, so we, we have to struggle with very high humidity. So the space station is the exact opposite. It's, it's low humidity. And um, one thing that I don't think we have mentioned so far is radiation. Um, the space station is is exposed to to increase radiation still the space station is in low earth orbit and it's protected from really deep space radiation from uh through the the, the magnetic uh, uh, protection from from earth the, the magnetosphere so um th- th- these are just some of the things that you have to think when you're talking about uh, medications right uh, now, when we're talking about Mars, we're talking about the Moon. 
we're going to be in really deep space. So when you're in deep space, and that means when you are past the two Van Allen belts that, that protects, uh, protects the Earth and the space station from, from radiation, from space radiation, um, that is something that you always have to take into account, how the radiation is going to affect the, the medications, how the radiation is going, to the is going to affect the medications into making them not only and I mean, this is not the ideal case, but if, if, we, if, if we're thinking on, on, on the effects of radiation and, and other environment, environmental issues and medications, the first thing that probably people would think is, okay, if I take a medication that maybe is expired, okay, I take it, but it's not going to be as effective, right? And uh, yeah, that's probably right. It's not going to be as effective as, as, as if you would take it, but that not, that's not the worst case. The worst case is what happens to the original molecules hmm. that... Um, medication that the worst case is that maybe it has created additional molecules that will make you sick, right? Right. So that's that's what we don't know from for a lot of medications. So um, going back to your questions and just wrapping this up, yes, on, on, on low Earth orbit, most of the medications are replenished and there's no issues with that. Now when we go to the moon. This is going to going to be probably a, a just 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 weeks to months mission. So maybe we will not have any issues with that either. But when we go to Mars, what do we do, right? I mean, you cannot just stop uh, between um, the moon and Mars to your favorite pharmacy and <laughs> just buy buy uh, OTC medications. I mean, or, CVS right? is everywhere, you know. <laughs> right. Okay, I was going to say CVS. So I'm glad you said that. Uh, so yes, let's say CVS, right? <laughs> So yeah, you cannot stop at CVS, uh, but um, what can you do, right? Because I mean, you, you were talking about uh, 3D printing and the challenge with 3D printing is that, yes, you might be able to 3D print a new medication, but still you need to have the, the, the materials, right? That, that you need to, to 3D print that medication. So those materials that you need, those precursors are very also well like to expire, right? So yes, you might have a 3D printer and you, you might be able to print these medications and, 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 and so on. But if your, your precursors, your materials are expired, then it doesn't matter if you have a 3D printer, right? So um, uh, the Institute where I work, the Translational Research Institute for Space Health, we have um, uh, actually solicited for this type of, of technologies and people looking into these fields in the last uh, couple of years. And we are looking into the synthetic biology approaches to solve these problems. So uh, one of the projects that we have, and uh, this is actually really cool, and uh, we could talk about hours for this project, but I know that we don't have a lot of time. Um, and this will sound um, a little bit like um, um, science fiction, but it, it is really happening. How can you, okay, what would you tell me if I tell you that you can inject through a gene gun, I'm talking about genes, okay, a gene gun, you can inject genes that will code for acetaminophen, you can inject these genes into a lettuce. Then the lettuce will take these genes into the coding parts of, of the lettuce. So the lettuce will, on, will not only produce a very fresh and very nutritious and very nice green lettuce, but it will also give you acetaminophen. Hmm. Hmm, I would so, say science fiction if, if you said yes. that. Well, it's not necessarily science fiction. We are looking into that. Wow. So one of one of our investigators, Dr. Karen McDonald from UC Davis, she is developing these technologies. So she is 
enabling the fact that you can produce medications on demand, right? So if you make medications by this way, you don't have to worry about expirations. You don't have to worry about uh, precursors. You don't have to worry about having a physical 3D printer that's gonna take a lot of space. Um, only the only things you would have to potentially carry is a, is a library, a virtual library of, of, of uh, gene sequences, right? Then a gene gun, and then this gun will inject these um, uh, genes in, into um, uh, a vector, like in this case is, is lettuce. And then the last part of this would be to, to um, uh, purify um, the, um, uh, the acetaminophen, and then you can dose it and, and give it to, to, to the astronauts. Uh, we have another product from MIT, from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, from Dr. Robert Langer. He's looking at using uh, E. coli and other, other bacteria into what he calls uh, 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 the mother machine. So this is something that, that would live in your stomach. And this E. coli could potentially produce, again, medications in your stomach. Um, so this E. coli, I mean, we know that E. coli has been used for a long time to produce insulin and, 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 and a lot of other, other uh, uh, medications and biologics that we use. So why cannot you use uh, E. coli to also produce medications you would need in spaceflight, right? So, uh, I mean, we at, at, at Trish, uh, our institute really believes that we have to take these risks. We have to take these, uh, we have to be very nimble and to think of these new technologies that again, look at, they sound as, as science fiction, but you know, if, if they're successful, they could really solve the, the, the space uh, uh, pharmacy problem. Yeah, that is extremely interesting. So you could, you could grow your own biogenetic, crunchy, green, uh, Tylenol. I would love to to see what the SIG or the directions would look like on that. Like, chew one quarter head of lettuce, queue four to six hours or something like that. It's great. Yeah. So 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 that that's one of the biggest challenges, right? Because I mean, you 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 could have two two types of lettuce. Both of them might look a bit different. So um, the first step is to purify the 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 lettuce. It, it's it's not necessarily giving the astronauts the lettuce physically to eat it but purifying the lettuce so that you can have a consistent amount of, of, um, of those, right? So that you right. can consistently give the dose. Uh, I mean, of course, I'm not saying that, that the approach that you're saying cannot be achieved in the future. It very well might be the, the, the approach, right? Like, okay, I mean, make yourself a Caesar salad on your way to Mars. <laughs> and, you know, if you have a headache, you can also fix that. But the first step, we need to make sure that we have consistent doses of, of um uh, acetaminophen, and that uh, we can we can consistently uh, produce these these uh, therapeutic doses. So the only way that we can ensure that is that by 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 purifying the uh, the lettuce and then measuring the concentration of of acetaminophen. But but absolutely, by all means, what you're mentioning is 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 not uh, it, it's definitely out there. Absolutely, very interesting. What about the effects of being especially in deep space on the the heart like i imagine you're obviously screening for things like arrhythmias and things like that with astronauts but i guess not even deep space but what happens when uh like commercial flights to the moon however long that's going to take i'm sure you know there's people that are going to jump all over that how how does that come into effect or does it yeah so um yeah definitely there's some some effects in the in the heart and uh, and the heart rhythm uh, but uh, going back to what we're talking about uh, at the beginning of this um, podcast, we're saying that you know most astronauts are absolutely healthy. They have been screened, you know, 
all their astronaut lives um, to make sure they're as healthy as possible when they go to space. Now, that being said, I was I was telling you about the, the fluid shifting, right? So um, the heart and the, the receptors that we have on the on the neck on the on the carotid artery, the carotid bodies, they're measuring that the, the there's a fluid overload where, where there's really not a fluid overload, right? It's, it's only a fluid shifting. So, you know, after some some time, uh, they start developing um, uh, tachycardia, then it goes back to normal. And um, some of the more of the, let's say, anatomic changes or uh, morphology, morphology uh, changes that happens to the heart. Um, we know that the, the, the heart here on Earth is, is, is a very, very well-defined structure, the left ventricle, the right ventricle, and it looks uh, sort of like a triangle on the bottom, on the, on the, on the, on the, on the uh, vertex of the um, left and right ventricle. And this is uh, also driven by, by gravity, right? We know that um, uh, the, the, the tip of the heart, it is driven by gravity. Now, when you go to space, since there's no gravity again, you, the, the, the heart shape changes a little bit. So the heart looks more like a, like a sphere, like a circle. And this again is driven by the, the lack of, 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 uh, of gravity. Now, uh, that being said, there's not a lot of pathological changes that you can see on astronauts that, that would tell you, oh my God, they're gonna get like uh, congestive heart failure or they're gonna have an increased likelihood of cardiac arrest. No, no we, we haven't seen any of those changes. Yes, some of them are very subtle, very, very um, subclinical. Uh, some of them, uh, you know, as we call, in, call them in the, in the medical field, incidentalomas, and yes, you, you find that, that the structure of the heart changes. But uh, yes, I mean, probably if you see that type of heart on Earth, you will be very worried. But um, in space, we know that it's just uh, the uh, what, what people call the space flight adaptation syndrome. There's a lot of, of changes in the physiology, in the anatomy, and 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 uh, really the, the the physiology itself um, of of astronauts that happens in space. That yes, if you see a lot of those things on 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 Earth, you're really worried. But in space, it's just part of how the body adapts to to um, you know, a zero-G environment with all the environmental, psychological, and all, all, all the, the, the challenges that we have, we have discussed. So, um, yeah, so from, from, from the um, cardiovascular side of things, what I would tell you that is the main concern is how radiation is going to affect the cardiovascular system. Not on, on, on ISS, uh, probably not that much on the moon because the missions are not gonna be that long. Yes, the astronauts are going to be exposed to space radiation, but not long enough, not that long enough to have very severe effects on, on the cardiovascular system. Now, that being said, when we go to Mars, it's a completely different story. The radiation that comes from, from space, we call it galactic cosmic radiation or GCR. And this is a very, very unique uh, type of radiation. This comes from from the Big Bang, from you know the creation of the universe, it comes from supernovas, from stars, and um, this type of radiation is very difficult to shield. Uh, there's a lot of isotopes. There's um, um, this this radiation have, have, has a lot of energy, have very high LET uh, energy, and it's very very difficult to shield. Now on the medical field, and um, most of the um, clinicians and, and, and health professionals on earth would think, okay, why 
don't we just give a lot of uh, lead, right, uh, to these astronauts, or why we don't put a lot of lead around the spacecraft to protect from radiation? Well, that works really good on Earth when we are getting X-rays or you know uh, a CT scan or or whatever types of of uh, imaging that we want, because ionizing radiation from X-rays and other imaging um, modalities that we have on Earth is is not very high energy. So if you have a, a shielding uh, layer that is very, very dense, it will completely stop the radiation. Now, I was telling you so, a few minutes ago that radiation in space is very high energy. So let's say that you bring a, uh, a lead apron and a lead uh, neck device, like the ones that we use when, you, when we do uh, interventional cardiology. If you bring that to space, you will make more radiation because there's this physics reaction that is called a Bremsstrahlung interaction. So if you have very dense materials such as lead, and then you have a very high LET particle from galactic cosmic radiation go through that very dense material, it will not only, it, so it's not gonna stop it, but it will create secondary X-rays. Mm. So, um, you know, we are looking at a lot of, of ways to stop radiation more in the um, genetic side of things, looking at how can we increase the natural radiation protection on humans so that let's say that we can increase the production of a specific protein that will allow the astronauts to be more resistant to radiation rather than looking at a physical shielding. Now, going back to your original question, I'm sorry that I, I took a, a couple minutes on this, but radiation is one of the, the, the most important challenges for, for deep space. No, that's great. Um, there are two tissues that we are specifically worried about for um, uh, having uh, deleterious effects from space radiation. So number one is the central nervous system. So how is the central nervous system going to be affected from space radiation? We know that it's very susceptible, but what's going to happen to the central nervous system. And the number two is the cardiovascular system. We know that, we know that the, the endothelium is very susceptible to uh, metabolic changes, to oxidative stress, as we know very well from people that have high lipids, high cholesterol. We know that you know, the, um, um, the plaques that form in the, in the endothelium have a lot to do with uh, uh, oxidation and, and oxidative stress. So in that same area, one of the main tissues that get affected um, is really the cardiovascular system. So, um, and this, this I'm, I'm sorry, I, I took this time, but going back to your question, uh, the, the, the concerns on the cardiovascular system are not necessarily related to arrhythmias or physiologic changes to the heart, but really on how the radiation is going to affect the cardiovascular system. So as far as decreasing, ways to decrease exposure, so you mentioned genetics. Um, are there things we can give, like have antioxidants been shown to be effective at all at decreasing any sort of exposure? Slash, I'm sure we can't encase the whole capsule in lead for the reasons you mentioned, and also it probably wouldn't fly. Um, but is there anything they can make the shuttle out of that might decrease the amount of exposure that is just going to get through and affect the astronauts inside of the, um, inside of the capsule? Yeah, so uh, people have been looking at this issue from all possible perspective, right? Like uh, physicists have been looking at this and okay, can we, can we create a magnetic shield around the spacecraft 
so that you know we want to have like a, the equivalent of the magnetosphere that we have on Earth, so that uh, galactic cosmic radiation doesn't go into the spacecraft. Yeah, people have been looking at this, but um, you would need uh, a, a huge amount of energy to to predict this field. I'm not saying that it's not possible, but it, it, you know people are looking at at, at right. these approaches. Now, other people say, okay, let's use water. Let's put water around the spacecraft so that uh, water uh, could potentially stop the, or, or not completely stop, but reduce the amount of, of radiation damage. That is also possible. But, you know, moving a spacecraft from the Earth to the moon and then from the moon to Mars, you would need a huge amount of energy to, to push not only the spacecraft, but only, also the water. And this is, this is actually a, a, an area that a lot of people are looking at this. If, if you think about um, nuclear reactors, and, and I want to make sure that everybody makes sure that we're not talking about the same types of radiation, but it's the same approach. Um, a lot of the, uh, the way that we have to, to, how can we, on Earth, how do we store the radiation rods that have been already used in, in, in uh, uh, nuclear reactors. I mean, people commonly uh, save the, these rods on, on water, right? Because water is a very, very good um, physical means for reducing the uh, uh, exposure to radiation. So yes, there's people looking at this. Now, our institute, the Translational Research Institute for Space Health, is looking more at biological approaches. So we, we don't look as much uh, in, into, into physics and uh, uh, like physical approaches to stopping radiation. So uh, in this area, we're looking at uh, a myriad of, of, of approaches to, 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 to countermeasure the radiation effect. So one of them, as I was mentioning a few, a few minutes ago, is looking at, into what genes we human beings already have that probably are not expressed highly because you know we live on, on Earth again and our, our bodies have been evolving through thousands of years in a pretty much zero to very low gravity, uh, I'm sorry, low radiation environment. So why would we need to overexpress um, proteins that protect us from radiation, right? But do we have them? And what do we have to do to overexpress them? So um, we have a, a handful of projects looking at, uh, again, going back to the idea that, of uh, synthetic biology that I was mentioning with uh, the uh, uh, production of pharmaceuticals. Uh, we have a project at um, a, one, a funded investigator from Bell College of Medicine, uh, Dr. Rosenberg. She's looking at E. coli. Uh, so E. coli can produce genes that could protect E. coli from radiation. So they're called damage down genes. So she found some of those genes. And then the next step is, okay, do we have any of those genes that are homolog to humans, right? Like, are there any human homolog genes that then we can overexpress? And then they will increase our uh, natural um, protection to radiation. So yes, she has found a bunch of, of genes that uh, we share with E. coli and, and through E. coli, she found that they are damage down genes. Uh, we have looked at these approaches from other ways like uh, tardigrades, the water bears, right? That we know that there are some of the most uh, um, uh, resistant and resilient uh, um, ways uh, for, for, for radiation. Mm -hmm. So we, we're looking at, at, at a lot of, of um, uh, ways to find genes that, that uh, they have human homologs and then 
the next step is, okay, yes, we have this library of genes. How can we overexpress these genes? And yes, that's absolutely the next, uh, the next logical step, but we also know that there's a lot of uh, uh, very rare diseases and, and uh, congenital diseases that um, now have been FDA approved to have um, adenovirus back vectors to increase production of a specific protein that that person is lacking so that you can treat that person for a specific disease, right? So that would be the next step. Uh, we are now looking at uh, creating a library of genes that could increase protection to radiation. And then the next step would be, okay, how can we make this library into a human, into an astronaut human, to make him or her more, more resistant to radiation. Mm. Now the challenge here is how do you make sure that those genes that you put into the into the human are not going to move into further cell lines, right? That's that's the challenge. So you need to make sure that if you pursue that approach in the future, those genetic changes do not transfer to additional uh, cell lines so that they, they do not get fully embedded into the genome of the astronaut. Because you don't want to do that. Right. You want to make sure that when you put them into the human, they will only um, increase the protein production in that specific cell division. So that when the, that cell is, is um, um, replicating, those changes will not go through the next cell lines. Of course, the, the, the downfall of that is that yes, you, you'll need to increase, you'll need to, to, to give the treatment again, but by that way, you're ensuring that there's no downline uh, uh, or down cell uh, effects on that. So, so by your research, you know, doing working on this kind of stuff, obviously, like you were saying, the downline, you know, risks of with the gels replicating, the cells replicating and whatnot. I'm wondering, like, back on Earth, uh, the medical applications of that. Um, once, once all the, you know, the bugs and stuff are out of that, 50 years from now, we're going to be able to inject cells and uh, hopefully stop skin cancer from happening. Absolutely, that's that's the end goal, right? I mean, I think that uh, in the last um, 10, 15, research has gone in a absolutely logarithmic scale, exponential scale, and uh, I, I can only imagine what's what's what we're going to see in the next uh, you know 10 to 20 years. Uh, probably cancer is going to be an old thing, hopefully. Uh, maybe we'll have like absolutely incredible ways to to predict cancer before it happens, and before it happens, we can give one of these therapies. Uh, and I mean, we 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 have a, a really good example of of how uh, cancer diagnostics and treatment has moved into a, a personalized way, right? Like, I mean, that breast cancer is mm -hmm. a perfect example. Uh, when you diagnose breast cancer, you need to do genetic testing to see if it's uh, uh, you know, triple positive, triple negative, and then you 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 uh, customize your treatment based on those those assessments. And we have uh, immunologic treatments for for each of those those types, right? Like if it's estrogen um, receptor positive or negative. And uh, I I personally believe that that uh, research is going to move in that way in the future. Yeah, that's really cool. So I, we were approaching an hour, so I don't want to kick up too much of your time, but, um, you know, I, where, you know, I guess in closing, you know, where, what's your favorite part of the research that you're currently working on? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean that's a very tough question. I all the above. Yeah. <laughs> all, all of the above. Yeah, I. I, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a physician by training, and I, I mean, we didn't have time today to talk about uh, all of the things that we're doing on 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 clinical and medical decision support, right? Uh, I mean, I was telling you that when we go to Mars, there's there's not going to be a, a, a real time uh, communication back to Earth uh, to say, okay, uh, this astronaut is having a, a a pain that you know it, it's likely to be x or y condition i mean we we the astronauts will not be able to make the call so how can we provide them with um clinical and, and, and medical decision support and to initiate the treatment without relying on a physician an expert physician back on earth so i mean we, we're looking into into those things as well and um yeah a problem my answer would be all of the above but um uh yeah, this this is an absolutely fascinating field, and um, sometimes is is uh, difficult to find the connections between what we're doing for space and and how all of these things can have a lot of applications back on Earth. And trust me, every single project, every single technology that we're looking at has a, a very very clear application back on Earth. And uh, you know, on the on the medical and clinical decision support, the the most uh, you know the easiest um, connections would be to disadvantaged communities, very remote communities that you know can take advantage of this. Um, cancer communities, or you were uh, as we were talking with 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 uh, the, the diagnostics and treatment for radiation, um, pharmacology, right? Like, I mean, you go to one of the most isolated regions in the U.S. You go to uh, you know to Montana or you know, very isolated regions that people have to, to drive hundreds of miles to find a physician or maybe a pharmacy. How how do we ensure that these people have the same access to um, not only uh, medical diagnostics and treatment, but but um, um, medications? So I think that there's always uh, a very clear connection how space medicine developments have very clear applications back to terrestrial needs. Yeah, and I think we've seen um, even non-medically how innovations for space travel have, you know, affected regular people's lives as well. So in 10 or 15 years, are we going to uh, see your name walking on a mission to Mars as the chief medical officer heading off for a three-year trip? <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 I have always wanted to be an astronaut, so... Uh... <laughs> Uh, as, as long as, as we have the, the technologies that we're developing in our institute, I will be very, uh, very safe to go there. And probably my wife and my daughters would say, okay, we, we will let you go. And then, yeah. <laughs> That'd be amazing. That's awesome. That'd be amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this with us. I'm, I mean, it's super interesting and I'm hoping maybe we could even talk you into part two at some point. <laughs> Absolutely. But- Happy to do it. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, please let us know if, if you any new research that you have coming out, if we can kind of help get the word out about it and everything, that would be awesome for us, too. So um, thank you so much for for taking the time to do this. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. I, I am very excited to be here and uh, looking forward to the next one. And uh, hopefully your uh, uh, your audience um, feels that this is interesting. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, for sure. 
right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, if you have any questions, our emails will be in the show notes. Um, you can also get in touch with us on any of the social media platforms. If you want to text us directly, go text um, your name or whatever message you have to 415-943-6116. And um, let us know if you have any ideas, thoughts, anything like that. And um, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening and the support. Y'all have a good one.